Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Peter. I'm one of the consultant paediatric intensivists from Glasgow. Uh, thanks to Chris and the organisers for inviting me to give a talk about bronchiolitis. And uh, before I start, I should probably give a bit of a disclaimer that I'm a bit of a controversial character, apparently. Um, you know, I'm a strong believer in challenging the norm, challenging dogma. Um, I like to put the cat amongst the pigeons. Um, and that's because, you know, to keep with the cat analogies, I think there are many ways to skin a cat. I think part of the strength of healthcare and the NHS in general is that we recognise that flexibility is important, adaptability is important. There's loads of different ways to do things, rarely a right or wrong answer. Um, and I think it's important that we have those sorts of conversations, discussions about how to do things and what the options are. Um, and my way of doing things might be different to yours or to others, and a lot of the time that's okay. Um, I can only talk from my own perspective and a little bit about the evidence base. But how controversial can I be about bronchiolitis, right? Well, let's see how we go. So bronchiolitis, it is everybody's bread and butter in the world of paediatrics. And from a paediatric intensivist's point of view, actually it's, it's part of our bread and butter as well. We see this every year. It's one of the most common uh, viral low respiratory tract infections that we see in children, you know, under 18 months, two years of age. Um, and the vast majority don't need to come as far as ICU, but we do see it a lot. And that's why it's important that we talk about it. Um, how big an issue is it in terms of our systems? How does it affect us? Well, bronchiolitis is, a, is responsible for around one in six of all UK hospital admissions within uh, paediatrics. Worldwide, it's the second largest cause of death in children under a year of age. And um, within the UK, approximately 30,000 uh, babies and children under five are estimated to be admitted to hospital because of RSV, which is you know, the most common virus associated with bronchiolitis. But we do know that there are others, such as human metneumovirus, enterovirus, rhinovirus, and, and others. And um, that has a knock-on effect in terms of PICU admissions, um, around 2,000 a year, approximately. And also children do die from bronchiolitis. And if you look at the data, it, it ranges between sources, between you know, 30 children to 90 children even per year um, may die from bronchiolitis. So it is a really important um, clinical condition. And um, every year it causes a lot of strain and stress within our healthcare services and within ICU as well. Um, the elephant in the room here is about COVID and how that has impacted upon us. Um, and it certainly has. And we all know that last year we didn't see much bronchiolitis. It was a relatively quiet winter for us. But things have changed. And the reason that we didn't see as much bronchiolitis is because of hand hygiene and because of social restrictions. You know, there wasn't the same mixing of people as there, as there was previously. Um, now we're in the circumstance where we've got schools reopening, um, cafes, bars, shops, all of those things are opening and people are coming to contact with each other again. And now we're seeing a real change in terms of um, our patient mix. So we wouldn't expect necessarily to see a spike in bronchiolitis within PICU just yet. Normally that's a little bit later. But you can see from this data from Australia that they're getting spikes happening at times of the year that they wouldn't normally. You know, we all look towards Australia to sort of anticipate what type of bronchiolitic season we're going to have. 
um, and the data from Australia is certainly pointing towards um, a spike out of season. Is that something that we think we are seeing? Anecdotally, absolutely. The past few weeks have been super busy in terms of bronchiolitic presentations, and we wouldn't expect to be seeing that for at least another three weeks or so. Um, in and around the time of uh, this conference, um, that's, that's around the time that we'd be starting to see bronchiolitics. So it's a bit early for us. And if you look at this graph from Public Health Wheels, again, this is looking at the recorded RSV incidents year on year with a different coloured um, uh, bar for each uh, year. You can quite clearly see that to the right of this graph, 2020-2021 season, we are seeing a spike that is out of keeping with what we would normally see for this time of year. So there is data that backs up what we feel we are seeing. So that is causing a lot of anxiety um, within healthcare that uh, we already feel we're in the, the peak of season, yet we're also anticipating that things are going to get worse in coming weeks. So that is a bit worrying. So bronchiolitis it is a huge pressure on us. But in terms of the patient, what does it look like? Well, there's a range of symptoms um, and it can start with upper respiratory tract uh, symptoms like chorizal symptoms, your runny nose, um, lots of nasal congestion that might lead to per feeding. Um, and then that can progress into coughs and wheezing, low-grade temperatures. Um, so it progresses. And it's just, you know, the condition is one of progression and changes over time. But it's important to note that these symptoms can also be features of other clinical conditions as well. So it's really important that you keep a very broad differential open within your mind when you see somebody that you think might have bronchiolitis. So when we talk about the pattern of disease, the pattern of presentation, um, as I said, commonly it starts with um, upper respiratory tract symptoms for the first few days, and then it progresses into lower respiratory tract symptoms as your bronchioles get more edematous and you get more secretions, and then you start getting more work of breathing, more wheeze, um, heterogeneous changes within your lung fields, and usually things get worse between sort of day three, day five. And it's not until day 10 to 14 that you start to see sort of resolution of symptoms. Now, that's really important because what that should say to you is that if you have a patient who is approaching 10 days who's not clinically improving, you need to start thinking to yourself, actually, is something else going on here? And, and I've had that recently where a patient was referred down from the ward who wasn't improving. And actually, it might be that their underlying cardiac condition has a bigger role to play than was previously thought. It's also important because sometimes as a, as a retrieval team, you might get a phone call to say, listen, we're quite worried about this patient and they're only day one of their illness. And that is an important consideration because you would then expect them to potentially get worse. In Scotland, that might mean that we need to think about where that patient is, because if they're on an island and um, with limited provisions for paediatric care, then we might need to think about moving that patient earlier rather than later. So knowing the pattern and the progression of symptoms within bronchiolitis is super important. So um, in terms of the management, the treatment of bronchiolitis, what do we do or what are the key considerations? Well, a lot of the time we do have to practice the art of actively doing nothing. It's about supportive care. It's about good uh, quality nursing, trying to sit on your hands and not over egg it a little bit too much. 
but there are important concepts. So, you know, thumbs up for hydration. Hydration is really important. So what might that look like? Well, um, if we think somebody is getting behind in their hydration or is clinically dry, then we can um, feed them uh, via an NG tube. And that might be bolus feed initially, one hourly, two hourly, three hourly. It might be that we move them towards continuous feeds, or it might be that we don't think they'll tolerate feeds at all and they need to be kept nil by mouth and put on IV fluids. The amount of IV fluids I'll talk a little bit about later. But hydration is important, as is oxygenation. So we need to make sure that we are able to provide oxygen to these patients to maintain their saturations. What saturation should we target? Well, again, that depends uh, what your guidelines say. You might have a local protocol or guideline for that. NICE guidelines would say above 90% or above 92%, depending on whether you are over six weeks of age or under six weeks of age. And you have a number of options on how you deliver that in terms of waffling oxygen or nasal cannula oxygen or high flow oxygen or CPAP or progressing to more invasive um, modes of treatment. Um, in terms of broad brushstrokes with bronchiolitis, when they get referred to, to me as an intensivist, usually it's following down either one of two streams. It's either those who've become increasingly apneic or it's those who are becoming um, progressively distressed mm -hmm. towards respiratory failure in terms of work of breathing um, and desaturations and bradycardia or um, lethargy. So there is a, a role for um, a pokey finger. Um, there are no RCTs that have been done about this yet. I don't know if there ever will be. But if apneas are a bit of an issue, then you know people who work in paediatrics will know sometimes you give them a gentle prod and they remember to start breathing again. That is obviously not a long-term solution. And if apneas are a continuous issue or a progressive issue, then they do need consideration of escalation in treatment. So you've decided you need to escalate treatment. Well, what kind of therapies might you think about? What might that look like? So let's think about nebulizers. So we have thought before in the past about salbutamol, ibrotropium, uh, adrenaline, saline, hypertonic saline. Essentially, there isn't evidence for nebulizers within bronchiolitis. So the guidelines, the NICE guidelines, certainly do not recommend the routine use. The same goes for steroids, not recommended. And then in terms of caffeine, we all know that it's used in neonates for apneas of prematurity and those under 32 weeks or so. And there is no evidence um, for its use in apneas associated with bronchiolitis. So although it might help us at three in the morning or whatever time uh, you are reviewing these patients, um, not so much for the patient themselves. The other consideration is nasal suctioning. Now, um, this picture in the bottom right-hand corner, I don't know how you guys feel about it, but to me, I have never seen a child that happy when they're about to have uh, their nose suction, so that's a bit worrying. Um, but anyway, there is no evidence um, for routine nasal suctioning, but it should be considered in patients with apnea or patients with difficulty feeding. Certainly in intensive care, it's something I advocate for. But routinely, there's not a lot of evidence for any of these things, and they're not recommended. So, how helpful have I been? Uh, we've presented the case or the scenario of bronchiolitis. We've said they need to escalate in terms of therapies and treatments. And then I've gone through a list of things and told you not to do them. So that's super helpful, right? Well, I guess we need to go back to think about why, first of all, why do they need an escalation in therapy? What's the thought process here? 
And I think that's super important to put things into context. So sometimes we get a phone call from a district general hospital or from an island or from wherever um, saying, I'm worried about this child because I think they're tiring or I think they're getting tired. Now, I personally do not know what that means. And I struggle a little bit with that um, because language is important. And I think, you know, it's like working in a district general hospital where they ask you to review a patient because a patient is lamenting. It's a phrase that I'm not used to. And, you know, a year later, I'm still not going to know what lamenting actually means. So it's really important that we put these terms into context. Like, what do you mean when you say that? Is it grunting? That's worrying. Is it increasing apneas? That's worrying. Is it desaturations despite oxygen? Worrying. Are they tachypneic? Are they tachycardic? You know, what else is going on? Head bobbing. What we need is a bit of a picture. Now, sometimes it's a case of they seem okay, but they're not progressing. I just have a, a bad gut feeling about it. And that's okay too, because we can discuss that. That's that's absolutely fine. And, and having gut feelings about patients is really important because there is an art to all of this as well. Um, so I think having a discussion around that is really, really useful. It is worth noticing, noting that a patient can be tachypneic for days. You, a child can have a respiratory in the 80s for days and not have any issues. But you'll know, there is a difference between a patient who's sitting up tachypneic but interacting quite nicely with you compared to a child who's really struggling. Um, and there is a difference between the two. Um, recently, I've, I've been video called from an island um, to look at a patient directly because it's really difficult on the end of the phone to make those judgment calls whenever you can't see the patient. Um, and on a video call with the patient, I was able to see that they were sitting up on their mum's knee. They definitely had subcostal recession and intercostal recession, but they were bright. They were looking around them. When somebody tried to put an oxygen mask towards them, they swung a left hook and nearly took them out. Um, so that patient was definitely somebody that wasn't going to need intubation and ventilation at that moment in time. But equally, they were definitely somebody that would need moved off an island to a safer place of care. So that's really useful. So think about what you mean or try to put in terms what you mean. And um, because it's quite difficult as a retrievalist trying to ascertain where the concerns are. If you think a child clinically has respiratory failure and you, you genuinely think that this child needs to be escalated in terms of intubation and ventilation, fair enough, absolutely. You're there at the bed space, you know better, you know, you're at the bed space, you're just looking at them. And um, I don't need a gas to prove to me that you think that they need that. If you feel that they clinically are in respiratory failure, I'll support you in that. A gas won't change my mind and I'm not going to tell you not to escalate treatment based on those numbers. You know, I'm more interested in the patient than the numbers. So what can you escalate to? Well, things to think about are high flow oxygen or CPAP, depending on what's available to you. And that would be different depending on where you work. Um, so high flow, it's humidified, which I think is one of its you know, biggest benefits, because if you keep these secretions loose and easy to suction or cough out, I think that's really powerful. I think if they get dry and crusty and sticky, then that's much more of a bigger issue. So I like the humidity from high flow. Um, it does overcome a bit of dead space because it's fire and oxygen in under a bit of, you know, hybrid flow, obviously. Um, and it theoretically is providing a little bit of peep as well. Not much, but a little bit. So I can see the benefit on that theoretically. And I personally have seen it work. 
if you're able to um, use CPAP, whether that's bubble CPAP, mask CPAP, um, non-face ventilation of some description, then that is worth a go as well, um, as long as it's tolerated and you can get a good seal and the baby isn't continually opening their mouth and, and not, you know, it might not work that well. But both if you have them available, you know, they are worth a try. Um, that will be different uh, in each place, but um, I would be supportive of that as an as a escalation strategy. But what does the evidence say? Most of you will know about the sheer number of trials that there are looking at oxygen, high flow oxygen, CPAP, and actually you probably all have slightly different interpretations of them, and that's fine. You know, we all take away different sort of take home messages. If we look at the um, Capriates study, first of all, that looks at high flow oxygen versus standard oxygen, what they were looking at was one litre per kilo of high flow um, in over 200 patients, with the end point, end point being the time to wean off oxygen. Now, there wasn't a significant difference between the high flow group and the standard oxygen group, but what they did report was that less children in the flow group needed to progress to more invasive intensive support. So that says to me that actually maybe there is a benefit here of high flow and they only use one litre per kilo, so not even that much. When you then look at the Tremontian studies, Tremontian 1 and Tremontian 2, um, Tremontian 1 was a non-inferiority trial um, that was trying to again evaluate two litres per kilo of flow and this time against CPAP um, in over 140 infants with their primary endpoint being percentage failure of treatment within 24 hours of randomization. So not power to show things like the need for intubation or ventilation, PICU, things like that. Now, interestingly, their take-home message of the publication was um, the effectiveness of high flow was not equivalent to CPAP, but actually the confidence intervals basically left you unable to conclude non-inferiority within those two arms. They also performed a superiority analysis um, that suggested a relative risk of success with CPAP. But what's very interesting about that is that the, those in the CPAP group who needed rescued, 82% of them were rescued with high flow. So to me, there's still a few questions that come from that study that aren't necessarily answered. Tremontian 2, it compares 3 litres per kilo of flow with 2 litres per kilo of flow, essentially looking at percentage treatment failure within 48 hours, um, and found that having 3 litres of three liters per kilo of flow did not reduce the risk of treatment failure. So no real perceived benefit from that. And that's why most places will start with 2 litres per kilo of flow. Sometimes a retrieval team might ask you to put it up to three because it will buy you time to activate people, to get them in, to consider what, what you're going to do as next steps. Maybe by that stage it has had a beneficial effect, but if it hasn't, you might have hopefully bought yourself some time to get the team in and be prepared. Now, the other two studies within this slide, um, in terms of the CSER study and the um, Belfast study, they're slightly smaller studies with sort of 50 patients or so, again, looking at CPAP versus flow, no real difference between groups. But one that is worth talking about is the PARIS trial, which I'm sure many of you will know. So the PARIS trial is the one on the bottom left, is an RCT of high flow versus standard oxygen therapy or that's what they would tell you. But actually it's not really in my opinion because um, the rescue strategy for the standard option group was to go into high flow. So if you think of those patients who needed rescued in some form or another, 
all of those rescued patients at some point in the trial were on high flow oxygen. So I don't think you can really compare high flow oxygen to something else when all the patients pretty much were on high flow. It's not quite as easy as that. Um, and the escalation of care within the two arms was different. So obviously the, the standard oxygen treatment group could escalate to high flow, the high flow group couldn't do that. So there was a different escalation. Actually, what PARIS probably is, or probably more accurately described as, in my opinion, is a trial of immediate flow versus rescue flow. And then looking at the number that ended up having to go to intensive care. And those rates are something like 9% versus 12%, so not significantly different. Um, this paper would claim that the number needed to treat in terms of flow versus standard therapy to prevent an escalation of care is nine. But actually, my interpretation of this is more, you know, using high flow is superior for preventing you from then needing rescued onto flow. It doesn't, it just doesn't quite make sense to me, you know, so I'm not sure that um, the take home message is quite what I would take from it, albeit I do think the trial itself is conducted really well. I think there's a lot of strengths in it. You then need to look at where we're going um, in, in the future a little bit beyond um, bronchiolitis. So the same group, the PARIS, um, the PARIS trial team, if you like, the PARIS and PREDICT group, they are looking at PARIS2 um, and looking at the role of high flow in one trial and um, looking at that in terms of hypoxic acute respiratory failure. Um, so there are other studies that are being done that look at it slightly outside of the bronchiolitis sphere, but it might also influence what we do in the future. So um, keep an eye out for PARIS2. Um, the other trial mentioned there, they do have some results. Again, looks at high flow in terms of safety and conclude that high flow is very safe to be performed on the wards um, and that you get less escalation of care when you do use it. So many of us are um, fans of, of high flow being used on the ward because it is safe and I think we should be doing that. That needs to be a standard of care if it isn't already. So let's move on to talk about intubation. Intubation is, is important. So you know, we've talked about this scenario of a patient that is deteriorating, that um, you want to escalate, you've maybe done that onto high flow, you've maybe done that on the CPAP, but despite that, they still need some further support. So the question is, what do we need to think about or what are our considerations with regards to the intubation? So there's a couple of different um, considerations from my perspective. So let's first of all think about the team that we have. So you are gonna have a different skill mix. That depends again on the time of the day that this is happening at and who's around. Do you have uh, pediatricians, neonatologists, anaesthetists, um, emergency department physicians, you'll have a broad spectrum potentially of people and that will also vary depending on your unit, whether you're a DGH, tertiary unit, whatever that might be. So think about what the skill mix is and think about the roles that people might take within the intubation scenario. Who's going to be the team lead? Who's going to be intubator one? Who's going to be intubator two? Who's going to be the airway assistant? Who's going to give drugs? Who's going to start chest compressions should they be needed? There are a number of roles and it's really important to have a checklist. If you don't already have one, I would really recommend that so that you have a, a plan in place for how you might approach this. Now remember, just because you're anaesthetist doesn't mean that you should feel that you have to do the intubation. If it's a smaller child, you might find that the paediatrician or the neonatologist is more comfortable to do that. So have that conversation uh, within the team. 
Then think about location and ergonomics. So where is this going to happen in terms of the procedure itself? In resource, in the ward, in theatres, in NICU, different people will have different levels of comfort in different places. So it's worth performing simulations on this and doing it in different environments to see what it's like. How do I get to place X, Y, or Z? Where does the kit live if I go to place X, Y, or Z? All those considerations are important and they will be different. So having simulations is, is one way of improving familiarity with it. Another consideration is the drugs. What drugs will you use? Um, they might be protocolized where you work or they might not be. Um, you may wish to use drugs that you're more comfortable with rather than following a protocol or a guideline. Um, my personal drugs of choice that I use, um, because I work in a cardiac unit, we keep a relatively safe approach for, for all of our patients of um, fentanyl, ketamine and rock, two max per kilo of fentanyl, two milligrams per kilogram of ketamine and one milligram per kilogram of rock. I find that safe, I find that effective, that works where I work, um, and that's what I would recommend if I'm on the end of the phone. In terms of equipment, there's a lot to consider in terms of equipment. So first of all, monitoring. Um, is the, the monitoring that you have on the patient currently, so your ECG leads, your saturation probe, are they compatible with where you're going to be doing the procedure? You know, is the monitoring in theatre, does that use slightly different equipment or not? Make sure the, the monitoring equipment is set up and ready to go before you do anything else. Um, then think about your procedure, what are you going to do? Can people see the monitor? Where are they going to stand? Can they hear the tone or the beeps on the monitor? Do you have access? Do you have the drugs that you want? Do you have rescue drugs? Do you have fluid bolus? Do you have adrenaline? Do you have atropine? So part of your drugs is thinking about when things could potentially go wrong. Um, IV access wise, two peripheral lines in case one tissues in the middle of the procedure. You should not need a central line or an arterial line for a standard bronchiolitic. Um, suction catheters, I would have flexible suction catheters and a yanker because secretions are a big issue in bronchiolitis. And then when you get down to the actual intubation, obviously you need to think about your laryngoscope and blade and your ET tube. Now this may or may not be controversial to people. I've deliberately chosen these pictures for a reason. So textbooks might tell you it's a small baby, therefore you must use a Miller blade. People at this conference might tell you it's a small baby, use a Miller blade. I don't buy that at all, actually. Um, I don't use a Miller blade very, very rarely. Um, I'm happy to, um, but my go-to blade of choice is a Mac for every patient of every age. I'm happy to use a Robert Shaw, a Cardiff blade, a Miller, it doesn't matter, I'll use whatever, but I routinely reach for a Mac. I think there is a little bit, I personally have an issue with us telling you at a conference, you know, this is going to be outside of your comfort zone, so as much as possible, keep that some element of familiarity, whether that's the environment you're doing it in or your team, you know, simulate it out so you're used to each other and used to how it's going to play out. I think it's a little bit disingenuous for me to say to you, try and keep familiarity, but when it comes down to the crux of doing the procedure, go and use this blade that you don't normally use. I don't think that's fair. So my take on it is to, is to use a Mac if that's what you're familiar with with the caveat that have other options as a backup. Okay, so happy for you to use a Mac, but have other options. That's my perspective on it. With regards to the ET tube, people will have very strong beliefs in terms of a cuffed ET tube or an uncuffed ET tube. 
the vast majority of, of units are probably using Cuffy T-tubes. And I deliberately put an uncuffed T-tube on this slide for a couple of reasons. I personally do not care what type of T-tube you put in, as long as it is size appropriate. Whether it's cuffed or uncuffed, as long as it's the right size, I'm happy with that. Oral tube, absolutely happy with that. I do not want or need you to change it to a nasal tube if you've got a secure airway in place. Now, the reason I am happy with an uncuffed tube is because if you go to a cuffed version, you will reduce the size by 0.5, um, and we know secretions are a big issue in bronchiolitis. Therefore, you know, a big internal diameter, good suction, good clearance, that works for me. It makes sense to me. And for a long time, we were able to ventilate problems, ventilate patients with uncuffed tubes without any problems. So I don't buy the argument that all of a sudden, you know, oh, you'll not be able to ventilate them if you don't have a cuffed tube. I don't buy that at all. For some patients that need high pressure ventilation, like asthmatics, absolutely. For bronchiolytics, you can ventilate using either. Um, my other issue with cuff tubes in general is that you need to be really careful what your cuff pressure is. So we know in adults from studies that have been done in the past that your cuff, you know, your tracheal capillary pressure roughly in terms of perfusion, 25 to 30-ish, um, 20 to 30 even. The manometers that we use aim for, you know, a green area and a little dial of about 20. But to be honest, you know, we know that the blood pressure in children is a lot lower. The map of a child is lower than the map of an adult. So it makes sense that we would expect the you know, capillary pressure of a child's airway to be lower. But we don't know what it is. So why would we target 20? It doesn't make sense to me. So, you know, as if you're going to use a cuff tube, have that cuff pressure as low as humanly possible to actually, you know, ventilate the patient but you should be able to ventilate them without a problem. So I don't mind which you use. There are strengths and, and you know, weaknesses to both. Um, just, I don't want you to feel that you must only use one over the other. Both to me are acceptable. So in terms of ventilation strategy, once, once they are um, intubated, obviously make sure your tube is secure, have it x-rayed so you're okay with the position of it. That's really important. Use the ventilator that you're used to using. Um, and um, pick a mode. Now, for me personally, I tend to use a pressure control mode of ventilation rather than a volume control. That's because it is more physiological, so therefore it makes sense to me to use it. In terms of baseline settings, put enough peak pressure in to move the chest. Um, now, that should definitely be less than 30. I would normally start at 24 and see what I need to do. Um, but if you see the chest moving, that's enough. It might not be that much. I would start with a PEEP of 5, an I-time of 0.7, and a rate of about 30. And I'd look at the patient and see what their entire CO2, etc., was. Um, you know, the CO2 might be high. You know, it might be sitting 7s, 8s, 9s. If it's less than 10, I don't chase it. Because I'll be doing things when I get to ICU to move the patient forward. You know, things like clearing those secretions, um, physio. We'll talk about those a little bit later. But I, I tolerate slightly higher CO2s depending on the... Um, on how the patient is, you know. Um, so that's the baseline settings that I would use. I would keep the patient asleep uh, with a morphine infusion. Usually that's enough for a small child. If you need to add in a second agent, my agent of choice would be IV clonidine um, for a number of reasons um, rather than using anything else. But again, follow your local protocol. 
Other people in church in this conference will have talked about dopes, so I'm not going to go into it too much, but just to be aware of it, that if you have any issues when your child's being ventilated in terms of desaturations or instability, to think about tube displacement, have a, a look under direct laryngoscopy and see where your tube is, and think about obstruction, particularly with small babies and small tubes, secretions are an issue. Think about pneumothorax, clinically examine the patient. There are things that you're not going to see in terms of tracheal deviation, but examine the patient. Think about your equipment, take the patient off the vent and handbag them and see if you get a quick resolution of things and then get somebody to walk the circuit back and see if there's any sources of leak. Make sure your filters are not waterlogged because we're using a lot of filters now in the setting of COVID and they're getting absolutely saturated and then they're causing ventilation problems. And then also think of breath sacking. So, you know, I think of bronchiolitis as part of a spectrum with viral induced wheeze and, and asthma all being some, there's some overla overlapping similarities in terms of pathophysiology. So you need to make sure that with bronchiolitis, you equally give them enough time to expire, which is why you need to be careful about what eye time and rate you have the ventilation set up. So just keep an eye on your ventilator and make sure there's no breath stacking happening as well. So from a retrieval perspective, then the question is, what, what do we want as retrievalists? And what's our wish list? I hope that we don't ask too much, to be honest. Um, you know, I don't want loads done to a bronchiolytic to, to allow me to move them to an ICU. When I arrive, you know, we'll take handover from the patient in terms of recap the, the presentation and then get an update in terms of how they've been with you guys, uh, what you've done, you know, the airway details, uh, where you are currently in terms of ventilation, hemodynamics, and we'll have a look at the x-ray. Once we've got all of that detail, then we will do a clinical assessment of the patient and try to do as little as we have to before we can get out of the way and move, you know. Um, so things that can help us out, obviously when the tube's in, if it's nice and secure and x-rayed and in a good position, that's great. Um, an NG tube in before the x-ray is super helpful as well. Two peripheral lines in working, um, flushed, good to go, that's great. Um, some IV fluids, now that can be whichever fluids you use, whether that's plasmolite and 5% dextrose or 0.9% saline and 5% dextrose, I don't mind. Again, I put them at 50% maintenance in terms of the rate. If you can have sedation running, um, most places know what their local ICU uses and has that protocol. So if you've got some morphine running, that's great. Um, speeds up the process of us just moving the pumps across and going. Um, I would stay away from things like SIBO that can cause issues with hypotension and instability in smaller patients. So morphine is, is a good choice. Um, if you've sent secretions, that's great. Otherwise, we'll do them in ICU. It's not a problem. And essentially, we just want to get going. You know, we don't really need to do anything else. I don't want to stay and put in a central line. I'm not going to stay and put in an art line. I'm not going to electively change that tube because the tube is absolutely fine. So um, if those things are all done and the paperwork is there, photocopied, ready to go, um, then I'm more than happy. So when I get this child to ICU, how would I manage a bronchiolytic? So if a retrievalist brought me a, a bronchiolytic, what would I do as an intensivist? Well, I would get the handover, I'd get the monitoring changed, I'd get the patient over into our bed, um, and then I would um, start working towards moving them forward. So I would change the tube from an oral tube to a nasal tube at that point, because nasal tubes are better tolerated. Um, I do not want to leave this child as an oral tube for 24 hours, where anytime we wake them up, they get distressed, they get lots of oral secretions, their tapes become loose, then we re-sedate them, then we put more tapes on. I don't want to get into that scenario. 
So I'd be very, very quick in the first night, if possible, to change that to a nasal tube. I will wean the ventilation as quickly as possible um, based on end tidal CO2 and how the patient looks clinically. Um, I will allow them to wake up as much as I can because that movement and being active is the best physio that they can actually get um, as long as they tolerate the tube. Um, so minimal sedation. IV morphine is fine, but I try to avoid anything else IV. And if they're sleepy with IV morphine, we can transition that to enteral morphine. Um, if I need a second agent along with morphine, again, I'll go with clonidine um, or I would go with alimemazine. I avoid midazolam and I avoid chloral. Midazolam, because it's a negative inotrope and I work in a cardiac center, I don't see a rule for it outside of epilepsy. Personally, I think there are other better alternatives. Chloral I avoid because it's an alcohol-based drug. And if I was to give any of you guys enough alcohol to make you sleepy, you would not wake up feeling very well in the morning. It's the same for our kids. Clonidine I like because you have the side effect of a bit of a relative bradycardia. A lot of my patients have congenital heart disease. Um, they have diastolic dysfunction and keeping them a little bit slower allows their um, heart to relax and therefore fill better and they get better um, stroke volume, better cardiac output as a result of that. So that's why I use clonidine. Physiotherapy is not recommended. There's sort of emerging evidence coming through that physio is maybe not beneficial. I struggle with that one a little bit because secretions are one of the main issues within bronchiolitis. If the secretions are easy to clear, easy to suction, and the patient has a strong cough, fine. If there's any issues or they're sticky or thick or difficult or they're not progressing as I would expect, then I'm very keen on physio actually. So that might be becoming a controversial standpoint, but I'm very keen for that. Fluids, I restrict to 50% um, whilst they're on any sort of ventilatory support because they will get an element of SIADH with bronchiolitis. I do not want to get into this scenario where we give them fluid, then they look a bit edematous, then their lungs are a bit wet, so then we give them some diuretics, and then because we've given them diuretics, their electrolytes are a bit low, so then we put them on some potassium replacement. That's all crazy, crazy to me. I don't do it. So just restrict them, just restrict them, keep them on the drier side. You know, a standard bronchiolytic should progress quite quickly for over a couple of days. I do not need a patient to grow in two days. It's totally unrealistic. None of us, if we're unwell, would, you know, want to go and eat a four-course, five-course, ten-course dinner. We just wouldn't. You wouldn't feel like you wanted to. Children are the same. So keep them very restricted. Much preferable to be on feeds than fluids, just to be very clear. You know, feed them as soon as you can and move the patient forward. We do have options if they're not progressing or if they're deteriorating. It would make me think, is there something else going on here in terms of the diagnosis? But other things you might hear people talk about are oscillation. Now, anyone who knows me knows, big disclaimer again, I am not a fan of oscillation. Absolutely not. There are a very few finite circumstances where I think it's useful, namely if somebody is ridiculously wet or has a load of chest tissue edema. I think just getting a big bit of pressure in with an oscillator will help push that out of the lung fields. Within 15 minutes, 30 minutes, you'll basically be back to normal ventilatory gases and you can go back onto conventional. That is the rule, in my opinion, for oscillation. Outside of that, I, will, I don't buy it and I very, very rarely use it. I don't think it's exactly what people think it is. Um, and that will be controversial to a lot of my colleagues who love it. Um, but that's my personal feeling on it. Um, ECMO, I love. I think it's, I think it's amazing. I think it works. I know it works. 
um, you know, not everywhere can offer it, which, you know, is a bit of a shame, um, but for understandable reasons. Bronchiolitics, very, very rare to need to go on to ECMO, to be honest. Um, but if they did, you'd expect them to have a good outcome because it is a reversible condition and they'd be offered ECMO as a bridge to recovery. The question would be, and the controversy would be, whether you put them on VA, cardiac ECMO, or VV, respiratory ECMO. Because if they're sick enough to go on to ECMO, usually they're on a couple of inotropes, they might have a little bit of impaired ventricular function as well. My opinion on that is that if you're going on for respiratory disease, you should not be cannulating the carotid artery. Therefore, you should be on respiratory VV ECMO. And if you oxygenate the coronaries, the function will get better and you'll likely find your inotrope requirement goes down. One of the issues in the UK is the lack of availability of dual limb and venous cannulas. Um, so a lot of units are thinking about, well, do we go VA? Is that a better strategy? Um, I think there are alternatives to that. So my personal opinion is that for respiratory disease, VB ECMO should be the modality of choice, but you shouldn't realistically need it for the vast majority of bronchiolitics. Is there evidence for what we do do? Well, this study uh, was led by Becky um, and it was done. Um, I was involved in this when I was in London and we looked at the bronchiolitic uh, treatment, if you like, across three London centres. And what we were able to see from associations and the data was that if you used benzos, opiates, um, a more liberal fluid strategy and left tubes orally rather than nasally, you did end up with a longer mean duration of invasive ventilation. So that, to me, supports the use of nomadas get the tube changed to a nasal and be very restrictive with the fluids. Now, the basis of this study is that we're now looking at a larger UK-wide similar retrospective cohort study. So we'll look and see what the results of that show, but that's an explanation, if you like, for some of what I do. I've mentioned before about the importance of keeping a, an open mind um, to what might else be going on if it doesn't fit the pattern in terms of symptoms or if it doesn't fit the pattern in terms of progression. Um, and that's that's really important. So what I wanted to do is just put up this x-ray of a bronchiolytic that was referred to me, five days, cough carousal symptoms, saturations in the 80s, responded nicely to oxygen, clinically deteriorated, ended up intubated and ventilated, and post-intubation they reported that they had a bit of right mid-zone consolidation, and this is their x-ray. So I just wanted you to have a look at that, just even for 10 seconds, and see if anything glaringly points out to you. So this is, you know, an x-ray of a presumed bronchiolitic. Yes, there's right mid-zone changes. ET tube's a bit low, you know, just at sort of carina level. But what I find interesting on this x-ray is that it's not massively rotated at all. But look at the displacement of the NG tube. It's quite marked, isn't it? It just deviates right over to the right-hand side. So that, to me, is, you know, some sort of atrial enlargement until proven otherwise. Something else going on here. And the heart's quite big. So when the patient arrived, examined them, they had a systolic murmur, they had hepatomegaly, an ECG showed ST segment changes. So on the basis of that, we asked for an urgent echo, and the echo showed that the patient had alcapa, so an anomalous left coronary artery. And um, that evening, the patient had to go for surgery to get that um, left coronary artery reimplanted. 
So I, I bring that up as a case of sometimes you just need to look at the whole picture and don't just assume a bronchiolitic is a bronchiolitic because every year there's one or two that's referred in as a bronchiolitis that isn't. And cardiomegaly on a bronchiolitic x-ray should send alarm bells a little bit until you prove that it's not something else. What does the future hold? Well, there's a number of trials that are underway within critical care that might influence how we approach things in the future. So trials like the OxyPICU trial that's looking at what oxygen saturations we should be targeting in unwell children, ventilated children. We've got the first ABC trial that's two RCTs studying um, if high flow is as effective as CPAP, and that's in terms of acute illness or as a step down post-extubation because it's important to know that you can extubate to, to nasal cannula oxygen. It doesn't always have to be high flow. And the best trial, an RCT looking at the safety and efficacy of surfactant compared to air and in uh, bronchiolytics. And also as a broader concept, there's a global uh, genomic study looking at genomes um, in terms of critical illness across the world. So that might um, have some exciting findings that might influence how we do things in terms of personalised medicine moving into the future. So things to look out for there. Um, so I hope that talk wasn't too controversial. Um, it might be to some of you and not to others. Again, I just think it's really important that we think about things, challenge things, accept that there's many ways of doing things, sometimes not any right or wrong answers, um, but I'm happy to take any questions. Thank you.